Good morning. Welcome back to GemCast. I am here with Leah Hatfield, who is our ED pharmacist here. Leah, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about a cool medication for hypertensive emergencies, and that is clavidipine. Let's start out with some of the reasons or cases why you might want to use an IV medication to control blood pressure. And this is not specific to older adults, but certainly the scenarios or cases that might necessitate an IV blood pressure lowering medication are more common in older adults. So these would be things like a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage with hypertension, a patient who has an ischemic stroke who is getting TPA and requires close blood pressure control, patients with aortic dissections, or other hypertensive emergencies or things like press. So first of all, Leah, how does clavidipine work? So clavidipine is an injectable-only medication that is a short-acting dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. So it falls into the same class of medications as nicardipine, but has some interesting potential advantages in its use. Um, it comes as a lipid formulation, so it's a premixed bottle, looks quite a bit like propofol for infusion, um, and is great for continuous infusion in a variety of hypertensive emergencies, as you stated. So one of our other go-to medications that has a similar mechanism is nicardipine. And the potential benefit of clavidipine, as you mentioned, is that it has a shorter time to onset and is more rapidly titratable. So the challenge whenever we're using things like nicardipine is that you can start it and then overshoot and drop the blood pressure too far and then have to turn it down and then the blood pressure can fluctuate which can be problematic, particularly, for example, in patients getting TPA, you want to keep the blood pressure nice and steady. So a potential advantage of clavidipine over the more uh, well-known nicardipine is that you can titrate it more easily. Let's talk about, first of all, some blood pressure targets. Let's say we have our 70-year-old male who comes in with altered mental status, he's run as a code stroke, and we see a large intracranial hemorrhage or hemorrhagic stroke. What's our target pressure for that patient? Yeah, so great question. So typically when we're looking at a patient that comes in with an intracranial hemorrhage, you want no more than a 25% reduction from baseline in the first 24 hours of therapy. So a lot of times we'll use numbers like a systolic blood pressure in the goal range of 160 to 180, but you also have to be careful to take that in context with what the patient's initial systolic blood pressure is at presentation. So this patient would be a great potential candidate for clavidipine. What would our starting dose and would be and how would we titrate it? Yeah, great question. So as you mentioned, the rapid or the greatest advantage to clavidipine is its rapid onset and really easy ability to titrate. So the starting dose for adult patients is one to two milligrams per hour, and it can be titrated very rapidly. So you can actually double the dose at 90 second intervals, so pretty quickly, um, to work toward getting to your goal blood pressure. Its onset is only two minutes, and it actually has a biphasic half-life, so meaning the predominant or initial half-life is one minute only, and the terminal half-life is 15 minutes. So again, very similar, even though it's a different category of drug, very similar to propofol when you think about mm -hmm. time to onset, um, half-life, and, and duration of action. So you start at that one to two milligrams per hour and then turn it up in one to two milligram per hour um, increments. I usually recommend one milligram per hour increments once about every two minutes. 
And what's a typical dose that somebody might end up on, or is it quite variable? Yeah, great question. So in the small studies that have been done, um, and also the studies that were utilized for its initial approval, that average or mean duration needed, or mean dose needed to achieve goal blood pressure was four to six milligrams per hour. So it frequently doesn't take a lot. Um, the overwhelming majority of patients are going to reach their goal blood pressure at doses of 16 milligrams per hour or less. But for those patients with severe hypertension, so those presenting with systolics in the greater than 250 milligram um, of mercury range, there have been doses of up to 32 milligrams per hour used in studies. Okay, so we'll start at one milligram per hour, which I like because it's a nice, easy dose to remember. Very. And then every 90 seconds or so, we will titrate up by one milligram per hour. So we'll go from one to two, three, four and probably end up somewhere in the six to eight range. More than likely, yes. And the great thing about it is, again, if you if you are approaching your target blood pressure, I usually say slow down your titration a little bit. So mm -hmm. instead of titrating every two minutes, um, kind of stretch it out, titrate every four, you'll probably hit your gold blood pressure relatively quickly. And you mentioned that this was a in a lipid emulsion. Many patients who we may consider using this medication on will potentially be intubated and on propofol for sedation. Can we use it at the same time as propofol? You can. The thing that there is limited information on is whether or not the two are compatible in the same IV line. So it's certainly fine to use both together. The thing to know is they're probably each going to need their own IV site to run through. Let's consider another case now. Let's consider our 70-year-old male who comes in with chest pain radiating to the back and pulse discrepancy in his upper extremities, and on CT he has a, a thoracic aortic dissection, and his pressure is 190 over 140. Mm -hmm. So what would our target be with this patient, and would clavidipine be a good first-line agent? Yeah, so another excellent case example. So when we're looking at aortic dissection, traditionally first-line therapy is continuous infusion of a beta blocker like Esmolol. Um, with a patient with an initial presenting blood pressure um, in the systolic 190 range, you're pretty far off from your goal. Your goal is going to be a systolic pressure ideally of less than 110 or really as low as the patient can tolerate um, and also achieving rate control with a heart rate of less than 60. So first-line therapy is still always going to be beta blocker in that instance, but the thing to keep in mind is with a patient presenting with an initial systolic that, systolic that high, it's going to be unlikely that you'll achieve control with one agent. So this is a great option for an add-on to your esmolol infusion in order to get your systolic blood pressure closer to goal. Great. So for aortic dissection, still start with a beta blocker because with the clavidipine, you can have a reflex tachycardia, which would then potentially worsen the strain on the heart. So start with your beta blocker, but then this would be a good second line agent to keep that blood pressure low. Exactly. And what are some potential adverse events with clavidipine? Yeah, so the most common adverse events that have been reported both in studies and since the drug um, came to market are hypotension, not surprisingly, um, and then reflex tachycardia, as you mentioned. The reflex tachycardia is somewhat more likely if the drug is titrated too rapidly, so more rapidly than every 90 seconds, or if the patient has a pre-existing history of heart failure, particularly systolic heart failure. If either of those are um, observed while titrating the infusion, again, the beauty of this is the short half-life, so you would just turn your infusion back down or stop the infusion, and it's going to clear from the patient's system within just a few minutes. 
Are there any patients that we should not use this drug in? So there are a few. So there are a few absolute contraindications. Because it's in a lipid emulsion, you can't use um, the drug in any patients with allergies to soybeans, soy products, eggs or egg products. And the reason is that it exists in both an egg and soy-based medium. So if a patient has a known allergy to those products, it would be a contraindication. Also, patients with lipid metabolism disorders, which are a bit rare, but the more common contraindication you'd see would be a patient with a history of pancreatitis. Um, This drug has ability in a fairly short-term period to um, enhance hypertriglyceridemia. So in patients with history of pancreatitis, it should be um, either avoided or certainly used with extreme caution. So that's a potentially large population Mm -hmm. because many patients have pancreatitis that we see. Is... Does this mean, for example, a patient who has recurrent pancreatitis is in the ER every month with pancreatitis, or is it anybody who's had pancreatitis before? Or is the literature not clear? The literature is unclear at this point, but my suggestion is for those patients that have known chronic recurrent pancreatitis, probably worthwhile to avoid this agent and use an alternative like nicardipine. For patients that have had an isolated incident of pancreatitis in the past, or you have known lab results that their lipase isn't elevated, everything looks good, patient isn't symptomatic at the time, hasn't been symptomatic recently, more than appropriate to use this, certainly in the short term. And by short term, I mean even a six to 12 hour period of time to control blood pressure um, and and not have to worry about incident. And what is the cost of clavidipine, say, compared to other agents like nicardipine? The cost is going to vary somewhat widely from institution to institution, of course, based on contracted pricing. But in general, for many institutions currently, the cost of clavidipine is actually less. Um, The other potential advantage in looking at cost is also the fluid volume that's delivered from clavidipine is significantly lower than that with nicardipine. So not only do you get the potential advantage at your institution of a lower cost, you also have the potential advantage of lower fluid delivery, particularly for those patients who are fluid restricted, like your ICH population or heart failure population. And is it pretty widely available now, or is it still kind of making its way out to various hospitals? Great question. So the interesting thing about clavidipine is it's actually been on the market since 2008, but for whatever mm. reason, a lot of folks really weren't using it. Um, so it's it's on the market, it's devail- available, it's widely distributed, and because of the cost and titration advantages that have been seen in some of these small studies recently, it's pretty widely accessible to any hospital across the United States now. Interesting. We mentioned that clavidipine is much more rapidly titratable. Is there evidence that we can actually get to a target blood pressure more quickly than with other agents? So there have been two recent small studies published, both published in 2017. The first was published by Finger in um, Neurocritical Care, and that looked at clavidipine versus nicardipine in the neuroscience population. Um, The study found no statistically significant difference in efficacy of the agents, but there was a definite trend toward a shorter time to target blood pressure in the clavidipine group. The second study followed a couple months later in Journal of Intensive Care Medicine by Allison. That also showed no um, statistically significant difference um, in overall efficacy, and interestingly, no statistically significant difference in time to blood pressure control. And that study was done in both acute ischemic stroke and ICH Hmm. patients. Um, So I think you really have to consider patient-by-patient basis. I can tell you anecdotally, because of the short onset and short half-life, titration is certainly much more rapid, Mm -hmm. and there certainly seems to be an anecdotal trend toward tighter or quicker target blood pressure control with clavidipine. But you really need to consider each individual patient when considering the difference between the two drugs. And I think part of the goal is 
time to target blood pressure, but then also mm-hmm. part of it is maintaining a steady blood pressure afterwards, which mm-hmm. is where the titration component comes in, where you can sometimes overshoot with any medication and then have to back off a little bit. Exactly. And, you know, what I really like about clovidipine is often when these patients come in, whether it's a stroke patient or an ICH patient, a press patient, they're transitioning areas of care very quickly. So they come in through the ED and then they're headed off to the CT scanner or the ICU or other destinations and even teams of care providers relatively quickly. With clovidipine, I don't have to worry as much about a patient bottoming out you know, an hour or two down the line because I can titrate it and see effect immediately versus nicardipine takes about 20 to 30 minutes to reach steady state. Mm -hmm. And then I worry a little bit more about if I let that patient go out of line of sight, they're going to transition to a new provider or new environment. And all of a sudden their blood pressure is going to be significantly below target. Um, So to me, that's one of the main advantages. Wonderful. Well, just to summarize, clovidipine, not exactly a new drug, but kind of making its way out a little bit more into the accessible and used arena. A good agent to consider for hypertensive emergencies, such as spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, press, ischemic stroke, particularly those getting TPA. Probably second line for something like aortic dissection, where you want to control the heart rate first. Advantages are it's rapidly titratable, has a quick onset, and then you can adjust the dose every 90 seconds. Potentially faster time to target blood pressure, although small studies and not great evidence. Some potential adverse effects, watching out for that reflex tachycardia, and then also being aware that it is in a lipid emulsion, so should not be used in patients with soy or egg allergies, and also use caution in patients who have had recurrent or chronic pancreatitis probably avoid it in those in that population. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Leah. I appreciate you being on here to share your wisdom with us. And uh, we'll hope to talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me.